Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm not alone. Stop for 911. Where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. I'm pretty one look. Talk to the road. One in the chest, one in the hip. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started. Eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a one-way bottom little Cherub face, cherub face little boy who would do it, whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone, there'd be an enormous amount of uh, especially at first, an uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraband. And we do Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. What will you be covering this week, Barney? Well, Tara, I'm going to talk about the senseless murder of Adriana Donato by her ex-boyfriend, James Stoneham. This is a kind of murder that happens way too often. It makes me sick to my stomach that women are subjected to this jealousy fueled violence and that the perpetrators are often portrayed as victims too. Yeah, damn straight. Yeah, I'm going to get mad with this one. Yeah, okay, I'm looking forward to it. Barney Rage. Mm. That's not something we hear often. How about you, Tara? What have you got for us? Well, this week I looked into the case of an immensely overbearing mother who organised the murder of her 17-year-old daughter's ex-boyfriend because he dumped her. Ooh, that sounds complicated. It's way more complicated than that. It involves fortune tellers and drug runners. Ooh. And, well, it contains murder. <laughs> lots and lots of murder. I'm intrigued. Now, of course, this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. All right. Let's get murdery. Joey Fisher was born Albert Joseph Fisher Jr. in Brownsville, Texas on January 16, 1975. His parents were A.J. Buddy Fisher and Kareem Nelson. They had divorced in 1987 and both remarried other people. Joey lived with his mother and his stepfather in the affluent golf club neighbourhood of Rancho Vejo in Texas. Joey was a senior honours student at prestigious private Catholic school St. Joseph Academy in Brownsville. He had a 98.5 grade point average and was going to study in the honours program at the University of Texas after graduation. 18-year-old Joey liked playing basketball and fiddling with computers and aspired to become an engineer. 
He was voted most sarcastic by his high school class and was known for being quite a funny bugger. Most sarcastic? What an honour. <laughs> I think I'm going to vote for you next time. Thanks. <laughs> I think I like sarcastic Barney. It's sassy. Oh, I really appreciate your input, Tara. <laughs> oh, God. We've started something. No, we haven't. <laughs> yes, we have, and it's great. <laughs> Sarcastic Barney is very enthusiastic. Oh. No, yeah, he totally is. He totally is. <laughs> For several weeks during his junior year, Joey dated fellow St. Joseph student Christina Cisneros, who was a year younger than him. Joey and Christina were both pretty sporty and liked doing outdoor activities together. Now, they weren't one of those couples who couldn't keep their hands off each other and constantly had their tongues down each other's throats. In fact, his stepmother didn't even realise they were romantically involved, as she said she never saw any signs of affection between them. Well, you know, PDA is not classy. Oh, no, me. teenage PDA is overrated. Oh, yeah, when, you, when they're sort of leaning on you on, when you're sitting on the tram and they're oh. just... Sucking face. Oh, there used to be oh. some kind of like um, sort of tutoring program in the building that I worked in. And sometimes you'd have to walk past snogging teenagers like to get through the door. And it felt like kiddie porn. It was like, oh, God, uh, children, no. Jesus, no. I don't need to see that. No. You're in your school uniforms and everything. Christina's 55-year-old mother, Dora Garcia Cisneros, was quite old-fashioned but approved of her youngest child's relationship with Joey. He was a good boy from a good family and she thought her teenage daughter would be well provided for if she married him because all 17-year-olds should be on the lookout for husband material, right? Well, I know I should be. Yes. I think you might have missed the boat on the whole 17 thing. Really? I could pass for 17. <laughs> <laughs> you could pass for 1700 Oh, wow. I know, that was mean, wasn't it? That was it? a bit mean. I shouldn't be so mean to someone who looks so much like Santa Claus. I'm going to get no presents this yeah. Christmas, Harry Barney. Yeah, just sit on a snack. <laughs> <laughs> Colin, you're stocking, young lady. Joey's friends said that during spring break, he went with Christina spring to break. South Padre Island. Yeah, sorry. Joey's friends said that during spring break, he went with Christina to South Padre Island and they had sex in her parents' condo. Whoa, parent condo sex. That's the best kind, isn't it? Oh, can you imagine doing it now, though? Like, yay. Yeah. They said that afterwards he actually felt that it, it hadn't been such a great idea. For her part, Christina denied that they ever had sex, but that's pretty much what Catholic schoolgirls from traditional families have to say. They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, that was amazing. Later that year, they attended the school prom together and took several smiley photos. In June 1992, Joey broke up with Christina, telling her he just wasn't really feeling the relationship. This hit Christina like a brick shithouse and she cried all the tears her teenage eyes could make while feeling like her life was now over. 17 and alone forever. A sad, pitiful spinster for the rest of her sad, pitiful spinster life. Well, you know. I've been there. Yeah, so have I. So have I. I mean, that, that first love, when you break up with your first love, it feels like the end of the world. Oh, God, it I really get that does. with every breakup. Oh, I'm going to be alone forever. Fine, I'm just going to get more dogs. Joey had given Christina a ring of his while they were dating, like one that you put on your finger. And after he broke up with her, he asked her to return it. I, th I was expecting sarcastic Barney to come down with a bum mm, joke. Bum ring thing. <laughs> <laughs> Burning ring of fire. 
Christina refused to return it because surely that would make him get back with her, right? Ah, withholding. Is there anything it can't do? Christina's mum, Dora, hated to see her daughter so upset and didn't seem to realise that teen relationships generally don't last longer than a loaf of bread. That's true. Dora Cisneros was married to a respected surgeon named David and they had five children together. Dora seemed like a nice housewife and mother. She belonged to an exclusive club of local doctor's wives, who probably knew where to get the best painkillers, and also a mall walkers club who exercised by walking up and down the halls of the Sunrise Mall. Mm, I first thought you said mall walkers club. (laughs) Yeah, they go underground a lot. Uh, Mall walkers club, that sounds fascinating. Well, until I researched this case, I had no idea that that was a thing and quite frankly, I still don't get it. You go into like a shopping centre or a mall and everyone's slow walking everywhere. What kind of exercise are you going to get? Yeah, wouldn't it be nicer to walk amongst nature and stuff? That's what I do, but hey, I don't Uh. know. Maybe we're wrong. Maybe we should go for a mall walk and see if it changes our lives for the better. Let's trot on down to... Sparkly bear in our uh, uh-huh. exercise uh, outfits. Yep. Do we have those? Uh, we'll get those like bloody murder, you know, like the exercise tights and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would like a crop top and, yeah. some, <laughs> and some collots. Some collot leggings. Uh, Dora spent her childhood in Los Indios, Texas, on the Mexican border, but later moved to Brownsville. Her family were property owners who were wealthy enough to send her and her siblings to private schools. In 1974, the Cisneros' firstborn son, David Jr., was killed in a car accident during his senior year at St. Joseph. It is believed that Dora got pregnant with Christina to try to overcome her grief at losing her son. She considered Christina to be a miracle and thought nothing was too good for her little girl. Oh, like the sun shone out of her bum and all that. Yeah, totally. Mm, The sun shone out of her bum tongue. That's a sentence I didn't expect to hear today. Really? I thought that was Fridays. We always say that on Fridays. David Jr.'s death wasn't the first tragedy Dora's family had experienced. Her uncle is believed to have committed suicide and one of her brothers drowned as a teenager. Many people noticed a change in Dora after David's death. She became more overbearing and possessive of her other kids. When one of her other sons was having problems at school, um, she had a meeting with his teacher and the teacher recounted that Dora insisted that everything was the teacher's fault and firmly believed that the fruit of her loins could do no wrong. Mm, Dora sounds like a bit of a smother. Yeah, Dora's a total smother. Dora mm. the Endora the smotherer. Mm, the deplorer. Yeah, she also became more religious um, and began to visit local curanderas. Now, Brownsville is a city where there are curanderos and curanderas, Mexican medicine men and women. Some are good-natured and positive, but some are destructive and practice black magic. Whoa, and that's what Dora's going to do, right? No, she's going to do the positive route. It's going to be awesome. Now, if you cross their palms with silver, the local curandaras will prescribe herbs for physical ailments or spells, oils and incantations and sometimes read tarot cards for emotional issues. Oh, sounds fair. Dora phoned Joey several times at the beginning of the summer to ask him why he broke up with Christina and try to convince him to get back together with her. Stop it, Mum. You're embarrassing me. (laughs) Can you imagine that? Your mum calling your ex and trying to make them get back with you? Uh, that would be so weird. Yeah, that's 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 stepping over the line, isn't it? Yeah, oh, that's, that's yeah, it's, that's it's just like puking on the line and then running on forward. The line. That's definitely shitting on the line. 
So Joey did the whole it, it's not her, it's me thing and said that he wanted to be single and date other girls. Hey, baby, it's not you, it's me. Yeah. I, yeah, I just, just, I just want to spread my wild oats. I just want to play the field, baby. Yeah. Um, he also, like, he, he was like, no, I'm not going to keep seeing your daughter. Like, I'm sorry, but we've broken up. So Joey was pretty pissed at being interrogated by someone else's mother. And he was also mad that Christina was refusing to give back his ring. He even wrote Christina a letter saying that he wanted his ring back in 10 days or he would take legal action. Yeah, but hey, baby, I really like that ring. Give it back. (laughs) Yeah, he was very (laughs) sexy in the letter. Right. Okay, so after this, Dora went over his head and called Joey's father, Buddy, to like interrogate him about why Joey had broken up with Christina. Oh, Dora. Yeah, she called him more than once as well. In fact, she even set up a meeting with him at a local Burger King to talk about his son's ring and other things. Mm, you want a Whopper? Can I have that ring back? Yeah, I, <laughs> pretty much. Is that how it went? Yes, exactly like that. Oh, just You actually know this story. Why uh, am I still talking? Uh, you should just tell the rest of it. Well, and then... They went to the back and made out and... What? Um, no. Oh. No. No, 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 no. So That's... Buddy and Dora, not a thing? No. Okay. So when Dora continued to badger Buddy about Joey breaking up with Christina, Buddy said that his son was old enough to make his own decisions. I mean, he's 18 and that he wasn't going to get involved. Well, that's, a, yeah, that's the right Fair thing enough. to do. Fair enough. Fair enough, Buddy. So... Dora then tried to dob Joey into his dad, telling him that she knew that Joey drank. (gasps) An 18-year-old guy drinking beer. A teenager drinking beer secretly? Just not Never. And you want him to marry your daughter. I mean, who's got the real problem Mm. here, Dora? Uno momento, por favor. Buddy was just like, you know, that's kind of common for 18-year-olds to drink and, you know, I've never seen him do it. Uh, He also told Dora that he'd talked to Joey about making sure he behaved like a gentleman and Dora said that she'd get Christina to give back the ring. So it was a pretty, pretty awesome meeting at the Burger King. Yeah? Yep. So according to Joey's friends, this totally awkward meeting didn't stop Dora from continuing to call him. She's like stalking her her daughter's ex-boyfriend. He even told a friend that Dora offered him $500 a month to take back Christina. She was going to bribe him to go out with Christina. And it's not like Christina is like, I don't know, you know you see those pictures every year of the world's ugliest dog? Mm. I mean, she she wasn't that with a wig on, and even if she was, but, you know, like bribing someone. Crazy. $500, you say? Yeah, 500 a month, US. I'd probably do it. Mm, I'll consider it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it would be platonic. I guess we could hold hands when we watch movies, but that's all I'd want from that relationship. No, that's right. Yeah, I mean, come on. I don't want Dora breathing down my neck. Dora the deplorer. That's her. Eventually, Joey grew completely sick of being badgered by Dora and said to a friend, I've never told an adult off before, but yeah, I told her off. After this, Dora went to see a 73-year-old fortune teller named Maria Mercedes Martinez, who did tarot readings and cast spells at the back of a second-hand clothing store. All right, let's step it up a notch. Yeah, ha, ha. During their first meeting, One Track Mind Dora wanted to know if Joey would end up marrying Christina. Martinez read through her cards and told her that it wasn't going to happen. Dora paid the $5 for the reading and did a big huffy storm off, unhappy with the answer she'd been given. At their second meeting, Dora asked Martinez to cast a spell on Joey to make him fall in love with Christina. Seriously, this woman needs a hobby. Well, she has one. It's just not a very good one. Okay, no, she needs a better hobby. Yeah. 
Maybe some more mall walking. More mall walking would be better. Yeah, less stalking, more yeah. walking. Hey, there's a T-shirt. Less stalking, more walking. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> her obsession with her teenage daughter's love life is entirely creepy at this point and it just gets worse. Martinez said she couldn't do that and Dora stormed off again. In October 1992, Dora returned for another visit to Martinez's shop and asked her if she knew anyone willing to beat up Joey. So we're escalating. Okay. By the winter, she'd changed tack again and now wanted to have Joey killed. Oh, wow. She doesn't like Joey much now. Well, not anymore. She thought he was the perfect son-in-law, but now, now he doesn't deserve to walk the earth. So uh, Dora said she was willing to pay $3,000 to have someone kill Joey. According to Martinez, Dora told her that Joey had raped Christina, but this wasn't a claim that Christina had ever made. Mm. I think she was just saying it to try and get Martinez to, like, help her bump him off. Yeah, get, get her on board, yeah. Not cool, man. Not cool. Now, into this disturbing tale comes down-on-his-luck drug dealer Daniel Garza. His son was born with muscular dystrophy and caring for him had caused a lot of strain on his marriage. He and his wife had separated in the spring of 1992. Soon after this happened, he came to Martinez asking what he might do to reconcile with his wife. See, there's a thing with um, border drug dealers. They often consult the local curanderas because they believe that their witchcraft can make them invisible to federal authorities, among other things. Oh, come out with your hands up. Oh, where, oh, did, where did they go? go? He's gone. He's it's gone. Not, it's just not here anymore. <laughs> Does that work? Yeah. Sure. Gaza thought his wife's relatives had cast a spell on their marriage and he needed Martinez's help to have it lifted. So during one of their meetings in October 92, Martinez promised to help Gaza if he agreed to find someone to beat up Joey. But then in early February, she increased the stakes with Gaza and told him she wanted someone to kill the young man. Mm. Though Gaza assured Martinez that he would find someone for the job, he was far more interested in having her do something to make his ex-wife want to get back together with him. In the following weeks, he regularly called Martinez to talk about ways to get his wife to return. Now, Martinez herself was under pressure from Dora because she was phoning her daily, nagging her about getting someone to murder Joey. Wow. I wouldn't answer the phone if I was this woman. Yeah. When this case finally got to court, it became quite important where exactly Gaza had placed these calls. At trial, he testified that he'd made at least four calls from phone booths in the Mexican towns San Fernando and Matamoros. In early February 93, Lovelorn Gaza finally found some men to kill Joey. Israel Olivares and Heriberto Pizana. What were their names again? Israel Olivares and Heriberto Pizana. Like Gaza, they worked for a man named Rudy Queller in a drug smuggling and car theft operation that stretched from Mexico to Chicago. Olivares and Pizana were both car thieves and hitmen. Their parents must have been so proud. Well, maybe they were in the game too. Yeah, well, as long as they were better at it than their parents then. Family business. You want to improve, right? Mm. Gaza met with the two in Dallas on February 14th to exchange Valentine's Day gifts and go over the details of the murder plot. 
What? They no. <laughs> I threw that beat in there because it was Valentine's Day. Oh, know? they probably would have, you know. Well, yeah. I mean, That's come on. Nice. Like a scented candle or something. Maybe yeah. some chocolate. Hey, we're both colleagues. Yeah, we're working together on this. That's right. <laughs> yeah, here's a gift. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. I got you a gift too. Oh, oh it would have been a bit awkward if you had Oh, they're hadn't. both scented candles. Oh. I love scented candles. That's why I got you one. I, me too. I can't live without them. You know what? After we kill this guy, Maybe we, we should become a, friends. We should have a bath together. We should totally. And, light and we these can candles. light the candles. What a great idea. I love working with you. <laughs> Gaza gave them a photo of Joey Fisher and a map to his house. At 8.39pm on the evening of March 2nd, a car crossed into the United States from Mexico at the Brownsville point of entry. Border authorities recorded its Mexican licence plate number as 821THE7. A vehicle with that plate had crossed the border 18 times between August 92 and March 93. At 8.26pm, Pizana and Ramon Palomares, another of Rudy Queller's hitmen, checked into the La Quinta Inn. The receptionist noticed that their car was white and wrote down that the number plate was 821-THE7. The same car that had yeah, crossed the, the border. Yeah, the same one. Yeah. Joey Fisher woke up early to get ready for school on Wednesday, March 3rd, 1993. Just before 7am, he went to the garage and reversed his mother's car into the driveway. He then grabbed a garden hose to spray water on the car's windows to clean all the dust off them. As he hosed down the windows, a man came from behind him and shot him twice at point-blank range with a thirty-eight Super. One shot penetrated his chest and the other went into his brain. Wondering what had caused the commotion, Joey's mother Corinne came to the garage and saw Joey's body lying face up on the driveway. She screamed for his sister Kathy to call 911 and her and Joey's father Buddy, who lived nearby. Buddy raced his car to the house, taking a shortcut through a field of palm trees. When he arrived, he saw his son's body lying dead in the driveway, still holding the garden hose. The running water had spread Joey's blood all over the entire driveway. Witnesses remember seeing a short-bearded Hispanic man in his mid-twenties driving a white four-door vehicle with Mexican license plates speeding away after the shooting. At the crime scene, police found what turned out to be a critical piece of evidence. It was a yellow business card lying near Joey's body. The card was from a bail bond company in McKinney, Texas, which is near Dallas. The authorities later surmised that Joey had tried to grab his attacker and the card had fallen from his pocket. Oh, Tara, that's a clue. Yeah, it's a massive clue, don't you think? It's a big clue. Yeah, cluey. On the card was a handwritten phone number with a 214 area code, which is the code for Dallas, and the four was written in a very distinct way. Ooh, like it had a little heart above it or something. Oh, it was shaped like a bum, but it was still a four. No, it was just written in a really unusual way. Okay. You know, some people's handwriting is more distinct than others. This yeah. one, pretty damn distinct. Well, your chicken scratch. I recognise that anywhere. Yep, as you should on all the checks I signed for you. Kept man. <laughs> <laughs> they're all in bollers, though. So oh, like, damn. They don't mean nothing. They're not worth the paper they're written One on. One million bollers. Oh, 900 billion bollers for you, my oh, friend. Oh, thank you. That's okay. You can buy a quarter of a coffee. At around 7.40am on the morning of the murder, Olivares called Gaza to tell him that Joey was dead. Gaza immediately called Martinez to give her the news. 
She said she could not get the money from her client without proof of the murder. Garza went to the La Quinta Inn to discuss the matter with Oliveres. After their meeting, Pizana and Garza visited Martinez, who gave them the money. When the two returned to the La Quinta Inn, Garza noticed that Oliveres and Pizana were driving a white four-door car with Mexican number plates. Uh-huh. After searching through files at the bondsman's office, the sheriffs noticed that the writing on the back of the bondman's business card matched a drug boss Rudy Queller's handwritten bond application. Ah, oh, that four. Uh-huh, he had the fruity handwriting with all the weird fours that were shaped like bums. They also began pursuing information on Queller's associates, Pizana, Oliveros and Ramiro Moya. They learned about Gaza through Moya, who happened to be his brother. It was a family affair. When confronted by the authorities, Gaza sang like a yellow-tailed black cockatoo. That's exactly what he sounded like. I didn't realise we had audio of his interview. (laughs) Uh, He agreed to set up a meeting with Martinez and to wear a wire. On April 5th, a month after Joey was killed, the sheriff's office swooped in and arrested Martinez. Almost immediately, Martinez told the detectives that she'd been involved on the wishes of her client, Dora Cisneros. Dora the Deplora. At 7.30 the next morning, Martinez, wearing a wire provided by the sheriff's office, met with Dora on the pretext of the killers wanting more money. When Dora handed Martinez another $500 in cash, the sheriff of Cameron County moved in and arrested Dora for capital murder. Martinez was charged with capital murder as well. All right, they got him. They did. At trial, testimony by a person working for Rudy Queller, Victor Moreno, helped establish the link between Queller and the murder. Marino testified that he heard about Joey's murder within the Queller organisation. He'd also been with Queller when Palomares phoned him to report the murder of a boy in Brownsville. Dora and her accomplices were convicted in state court for capital murder. On March 9th, the judge sentenced Dora and Gaza to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 35 years, you know, if they happen to live that long. Martinez, the fortune teller, the curandera, was sentenced to 20 years in prison for conspiracy to commit murder. Bet she didn't see that coming. (laughs) Yeah. Did she read her own cards? I guess not. I'm telling you, fortune tellers operating out the back of secondhand clothing stores mightn't be the best ones. Just an observation. I don't know. They're not like they used to be. No, certainly not. Joey's parents said they were satisfied with the decision and that justice was finally served, but that their son's absence would leave a void for them for the rest of their lives. Oh, it would, wouldn't it? It really would. Yeah. But now some people might have noticed this from what I've said, but we'll see. On February 22nd, Dora was released from a Texas women's prison after judges ruled that prosecutors in Cameron County had presented evidence of a murder conspiracy and then effectively asked the jury to convict her on direct participation in the crime. You see? So Buddy Fisher responded by saying, I'm just absolutely livid that they're going to allow this lady to move back to town and take up life like nothing ever happened. 
In its ruling, the appeals court ordered Dora acquitted so she could not be retried for the killing on state charges. Although the court agreed she participated by giving money, a photograph of Joey and instructions to Martinez, it said there was no evidence that she'd contacted the killers herself, which she hadn't. No, she didn't, did she? No. So to make a federal case, prosecutors this time had to prove Dora was involved in a plot that included travel and phone calls from Mexico. After the federal trial, the government concluded that the prosecution met the burden of proof for interstate or foreign commerce charges through Gaza's phone calls from Mexico and through the matching license plates of the Mexican car that crossed into the US and registered at the motel, which matched the description of the vehicles seen at the murder scene by witnesses. In order to find Dora guilty, they were just required to prove that someone involved in Joey's murder used interstate or foreign commerce or caused another person to use it, which they did. So to cut a long story short, in the end, Dora Cisneros was sentenced to life in prison. Now, the men that actually committed the murder got away with it. Oh, no. Yeah, they fled to Mexico after the shooting and were never extradited back to the US to stand trial. Oh, probably because of the death penalty. Yeah, no. there's a lot of um, there's a lot of paperwork for that one. Well, a, lot a lot of red tape. Well, a lot of countries won't extradite if if uh, they don't believe in the death penalty. Yeah, yeah, Australia because they they them. don't yeah. have they don't have that in Mexico. But um, mm. oh my God, how how like horrible for Joey's family to have her let go even briefly oh, yeah. after all of that. Hey, Tara, I've got a question for you. Yeah? What did, was it Christina, the daughter? Yeah. I wonder what she thought of all this. Oh, okay. Well, Was it, thanks, Mum, or sarcastic, thanks, Mum? Thanks, Mum. Well, she actually um, went to university interstate and she changed her name because she was treated as quite a pariah, even though, you know, she didn't have a hand in any of the violent things that happened. But yeah. she was, you know, she was linked to this stuff. So mm. she wasn't seen in a good light by the community. No, she wouldn't be, would she? No, but, you know, she, she didn't ask for this to happen. Oh, she's, she's kind of a victim as she's well. She's just a teenage girl. Oh. Yeah, also, you know what? Like, Joey had another girlfriend and Christina had another boyfriend. Oh, really? She'd moved on. Oh, I it's didn't know seriously, that. Dora. So can I still get this $500 a week or? Um, no, I don't think so. Oh, I think yeah. that's off the table now. <laughs> yeah, sorry, dude. I don't know. I guess we're both going to have to work on the chain gang or some shit. Yeah. Oh. Hell of a story, right? I was going to say that. <laughs> I know. That's why I said it instead, just to spite you. Hey, so that was a pretty long story. Do you know what time it is now? I do. It's actually true crime their <gasps> time. I hey! love that. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV, series, documentary, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? Not in a way that I wish to speak of. You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. And that's exactly what I'm going to do now. Excellent. I've got one here from Libby Spicer. Libby! She's from South Africa. She's from South Africa, for anyone who couldn't understand what the hell he just said. My South African accent is solid. 
Mm. As long as I'm saying sneaky fucking prawns, eh? Right, okay. Should I should I get the award for most sarcastic again and go, yes, Barney, your South African <laughs> accent's very solid. Libby Spicer writes, Crime is something that South Africa is not short on. Many of the stories that would be front page news in other countries is a side note on page three or not mentioned at all. True crime stories are easy to find but rather difficult to find a satisfactory conclusion to. Many never have an ending. But the other day, my husband sent me a news article of a South African crime that sounds more like a plot for a Guy Ritchie film. Oh, I'm ready. We start with the headline, Alleged Gang Boss Donkey Dodges Death for the Sixth Time in 15 Months. Okay, I'm in. The Western Cape, in particular Cape Town, where our story takes place, is known to have gang violence as a regular occurrence. Donkey, a.k.a. Jerome <laughs> Boosen... Do is... we know how he got that nickname? Oh, well, he's probably hung like a donkey, I, I guess. I just assume he has, like, you know, really, like, a strong set of donkey teeth. Or maybe he goes, like, maybe he kicks backwards <laughs> when people bother him. Yeah, he goes, he, <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> he likes to carry bags up hills. Well, don't we all? <laughs> Front pack and a backpack. Uh, okay, so Don- okay, Tara. Donkey, a.k.a. Jerome Boyson, is the alleged boss of a gang called The Sexy Boys. <laughs> the Sexy Boys? Which have been around since apartheid days. The story starts off pretty well and then devolves into the absurd. Surviving five attempts on his life is fucking impressive. The first attack was a drive-by shooting where Donkey was shot in the neck. That happened in May. The second attempt comes in September, where a car he was believed to be in was shot 50 times. Who has the money for that many bullets in this economy? (laughs) There was a person in the car who was hit 21 times, but Donkey was safe again. Oh, wow. Maybe he saw a Curandera and he got a spell cast on him. Well, yeah, he's bulletproof. Mm -hmm. The third attempt in October was even more brazen, taking place at Cape Town International Airport. Who the fuck has the balls to shoot someone at an airport? Yeah, so much security, like cameras and yeah. like staff. Well, this time, Tara, Donkey was hit four times in the chest, but luckily survived. Oh, wow. Now, the fourth attempt is where things get really interesting. <laughs> After being hit four times in the chest, Donkey was recovering in Belleville Hospital, where an assassin made yet another attempt on his life with snake venom and a scalpel. But wait, it's better than it sounds. The male assassin had disguised himself as a female doctor, complete with a white coat, wig and pumps. Oh, that's like the Dress to Kill movie. Mm. The assassin was stopped by bodyguards and promptly arrested. The fifth attempt, another shooting in March, was foiled by Donkey's car being bulletproof. Oh, well, he'd want that after the last attempt with the 50 bullets. Well, he's, He's a learning donkey. Yeah, he is. Finally, we come to the latest. Oh, so Uh, there's six. I thought there was only five attempts. Well, no, there's another one. (laughs) Oh, wow. Another shooting. Donkey was at the Spur at uh, Kells River. What is that? That's a family restaurant. You know the ones that always have sticky table mats and children's play area right next to the smoking section? Oh, I used to face paint in places like that. Oh, yes. But you got fired for writing cunt on kids' foreheads, didn't you? No, that's how I got hired. Oh, yeah, (laughs) that's right. Well, Donkey was shot in the arm, but don't worry, he was able to fire back and hit the shooter in the head at a family restaurant. Oh, God. In the one video, you can see a pool of blood just underneath where the crayons and colouring in stuff is kept. Oh, my God, how terrifying for everyone. I doubt this will be the last we hear of Jerome Donkey Boyson (laughs) and the Sexy Boys, as they are currently in a turf war over nightclubs in Cape Town. 
I just mm. can't believe there's a game called The Sexy Boys. The Sexy Boys. I think Sexy Barney might be uh, I better. think Sexy Barney is in The Sexy Boys. Hey, Sexy Boys, would you like a Sexy Barney? <laughs> Hang on, wait. They're probably like not nice guys who do nice things, so maybe Sexy Barney should probably not associate with them. Uh, yeah, Business Tara says Sexy Barney should not associate with them. Well, thank you, Business Tara. Well, and thank you, Libby Spicer, for yes, supplying us. That, that was a n- corker. That was a nutty tale, wasn't <laughs> yes, it? Yes, I loved it. So send in your submissions to True Crime Nerd Time at bloodymurderpodcast at gmail.com and we'll read them out. Sounds like a good plan. And if you give us your postal address, we'll send you some stickers. Absolutely. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Absolutely. All right, Barney. Time to get murdery. All right. Well, this one's a bit of a cracker, and it's uh, it's a bit of a nut punch too. Ah, uh, dick punch. Another one. Yeah, you kind of do those regularly, don't you? Did you not realise we're a comedy podcast? Yeah, but these stories are important to get out. I think they certainly are. All right, here I go. Adriana Donado would never have gotten her ex-boyfriend's car if she had known about his plot to kill her and that he had a knife. Others knew. Why didn't anyone tell her? Adriana was born on October 21, 1991. Adriana lived with her parents Grace and Giuseppe and her brother Nicola at the family home in Avondale Heights in Melbourne. At the time of her murder, Adriana was about to graduate with a Bachelor of Science majoring in zoology from the University of Melbourne. She loved animals and was hopeful of working in an area connected with preserving the environment for future generations. Right before her murder, Adriana had planned the adventure of a lifetime in Italy where she was going to do a language course before meeting her best friend in Berlin. Aww. About two months before her 21st birthday, Adriana was murdered. Not by someone who hated her or even disliked her. She was murdered by someone who claimed to love her, her ex-boyfriend, James Stoneham. James was born in Sri Lanka on March 11, 1991. He was adopted as a baby by Julie and Ellen Stoneham, a former AFL star footballer. James lived with his adoptive parents and his brother Morgan in Essendon, just out of Melbourne. Later court documents revealed that whilst he struggled academically at school, he completed Year 12 and was of average intelligence. Initially, James found it difficult to settle into employment or study after high school, but eventually landed a job in retail that he excelled in. James and Adriana met while they were at secondary school together at Penley and Essendon Grammar. They commenced a relationship in Year 9. They broke up and got back together a few times. The relationship was described as turbulent, but was never violent and lasted about five years. In December 2011, Adriana finally ended it. James did not react well to the breakup. In fact, he was distraught. He developed significant depressive symptoms, including a prominent suicidal ideation. Those symptoms became particularly intense in early 2012. 
On one occasion, he attempted to commit suicide by taking an overdose of painkillers with nail polish remover. He was taken to hospital and then referred to Origin Youth Health, where in February 2012, he was assessed as having an adjustment disorder. He was referred to community treatment, but his condition worsened. On February 24, 2012, James was admitted as a psychiatric inpatient after making further attempts on his life. After five days, James absconded from the ward and was refused readmission. During this time, a psychiatrist diagnosed James as having a major depressive episode. His discharge summary stated his diagnosis as depression and being suicidal in the context of a relationship breakdown and a possible adjustment disorder. He was prescribed the antidepressant Prozac. Oh, is there anything that Prozac can't fix? Yeah, well, is the world perfect? <laughs> no. Then I guess there are some things. On March 27, 2012, James made further suicide attempts. One involved taking tablets and methylated spirits and sitting in a bath with the intention of dropping a hairdryer into the water. Wow, he really thinks that he should, like, take thinners with his meds. Um, did he drop the hairdryer into the water? He did not. Okay. In another attempt, he took rat poison mixed with yogurt with the intention of jumping onto a freeway. Did he? No. A third involved planning to jump off a cliff. After being found at the top of the cliff, he was taken to hospital by police under Section 10 of the Mental Health Act. He was released two days later. The dosage of his antidepressant medication was increased. During March 2012, James commenced treatment sessions with psychologist Dr. Carolyn Gregory. He saw her for a total of 14 sessions over the next five months. James appeared to be making good progress during that period. Appeared is the key word here, Tara, for it is plain that his progress was anything but good. On the night of August 1st, 2012, James smashed the passenger side window of Adriana's car while it was parked outside her family's home. The next day, James sent a text message to a friend with a photo of the damage and a handwritten note reading LNWOTB. What the hell's that mean? This initialization stands for Last Night Was Only the Beginning. In early August 2012, James conducted internet searches using the search criteria Murder Australian Law and Chloroform. Also, he searched for hunting stores in Melbourne, trophyarms.com.au, Centraway Firearms, Bow Stores Melbourne, Archery Stores near Melbourne, Murder Songs, Ways to Climb a Vertical Wall, Ways to Break a Window Quietly, How to Pick a Lock, How to Climb a Drain Pipe, and Tile Remover. The Donato family home was a large two-story premises, with Adriana's bedroom being on the upper floor. Yeah, I was thinking that. James also conducted Google Street View checks on Adriana's address and attempted to access her Facebook page on a number of occasions. Okay, so he's stalking her now, He really is. And also looking up some really sort of dangerous info in this context. He's planning. Ah, oh, damn it. At a counselling session with Dr Gregory on August 13, 2012, James reported ongoing difficulties with anger and aggression and referred to having thoughts of harming someone. He denied having a specific plan but refused to disclose any details of his thoughts. He was asked to guarantee that he would not act on any thoughts beyond the next two weeks. Oh, like a pinky swear? 
but he said he was unable to do that. An appointment was made for him to have a further counselling session in two weeks. Now, as we all know, a key element to the doctor-patient relationship is the patient's expectation that the doctor will hold their information in confidence. But according to Australian law, doctors are not required to maintain patient confidentiality when there is imminent danger to the patient or a member of the public. However, under privacy legislation, there is no mandatory duty for doctors to disclose confidential information to third parties. So if they don't pass on this information, they're not penalised in any way. Even if something comes of it? Yes. Okay. A later inquest into Adriana's murder centred on the extent of James's disclosure to Dr Carolyn Gregory of any threat to Adriana's safety, either implied or explicit. The coroner concluded that Dr Gregory should have questioned James on August 13, 2012 about his thoughts of violence and she should have made specific reference to Adriana. The coroner concluded that if this had occurred, the police should have been notified and Adriana warned of his threat to her. Why didn't anyone tell her? Sorry, that's the question you asked earlier. Exactly. It's coming up again. Four days later, on August 17, James went to a firearm store known as Trophy Arms in Essendon. Whilst there, he bought a skinning knife for $125. It was a fearsome-looking weapon with a sharp hook on the opposite side of a sharpened blade. At about 6pm the same day, Adriana ran into her friend Declan Haratzis at Southern Cross Railway Station. They travelled by train together to Essendon and discussed what they were doing. Declan was also a friend of James. He later rang James and told him of his chance meeting with Adriana. James expressed interest in where he had seen Adriana, where she was working and what her movements were. When Declan asked why he was so interested, James said, because I'm planning to kill her tonight. Oh, he came out and said it to someone. Why didn't anyone tell her? Yeah. Later that same day, James went to the house of Declan Haratzis and produced the skinning knife he had bought earlier. He told Declan he had bought it to kill Adriana. Declan then grabbed James in a headlock and dragged him into the kitchen where Declan and his father took the knife from him. After they calmed James down and got assurances from him he would not harm himself or anybody else, they returned the knife to James. Really? They got him to pinky swear, did they? Um, Whoa, whoa. Yeah, we're seeing a theme here. Yeah, we we really are. And then James left. Okay. And then then Declan didn't tell her, obviously. But he's a friend of hers as well, right? That's right. And when he saw the knife, he he put him in a headlock. He didn't see this knife and think like, oh, yeah, it's cool. He was like, damn straight, we're getting this out of your hands. Five days later, on August 22, James attended the next counselling session with Dr Gregory. He reported that his anger had decreased and that he was calm, with no thoughts of aggression towards others. He indicated he was future-focused, including having plans to save money in order to travel overseas in 2013. A further appointment was made for him on September 3, 2012. So I think he's learnt that if he keeps this shit to himself, he's... Less likely to be called on his shit yeah. if he doesn't tell anyone about his shit. At 10.15pm on the same day, James used his laptop to conduct numerous searches using Google to view Adriana's street, family home and surrounds. Not okay. 
The next day, James went to work from 10am to 7pm. Whilst at work, James googled on his iPhone, what is the sentence for murder in Australia and murder Australian law Wikipedia? Hang on, he'd already looked at these before. What Did he think the sentencing might have changed and become more lenient he since just the wanted, last time? Well, he's just practising due diligence here, Tara. Oh, okay. Well, I should respect that, I suppose. At 8.05pm the same day, James became aware of a 21st birthday celebration at the home of a person he knew in Cliff Street, Essendon. Adriana went to the same party. She was picked up from her home by a friend and driven there at about 10pm. At 9.54pm, James telephoned his friend, Will Dredge, and asked him to get Adriana to come outside the house in Cliff Street without telling her that he was outside. After a number of other phone calls were made to him by James, Will eventually complied with his request. He saw James approach Adriana as they got outside of the front gate of the house. James spoke to Adriana. They both walked to James' car and got in and drove north up Cliff Street. Will attempted to call Adriana, but her phone was not answered. He then called James and told him to bring her back. James said he wanted to speak to her for about 10 minutes and would then bring her back. Another friend eventually got James on the phone. It was on loudspeaker and they could hear Adriana crying in the background. When he asked if everything was okay, she said, No, I'm scared. He has a knife. The friend then asked where they were and Adriana told him they were down the river. When the friend attempted to clarify exactly where they were, James cut in and said, No, you can't come down and hung up. James had driven to Afton Reserve and Aberfeldy and parked his car in the parking area. He and Adriana walked along the gravel track for 130 metres. James had the skinning knife he had bought six days earlier with him. With that knife, he stabbed Adriana in the neck. The single stab wound was to the left side of her neck and incised her left medial clavicle and vertebrae and severed her carotid artery. The blade penetrated to the depth of eight centimetres and punctured her right lung. That is really deep. That's what, like four inches? Hmm. Shortly after this, James telephoned Adriana's friend back. He was hysterical and said, I've just done it. She's dead. He said he was near the Afton Street Bridge. The friend rushed there and found Adriana lying prone and motionless in a pool of blood. The knife was about a half a metre away. The friend immediately phoned the police. When the police arrived, James was near the bridge. He held the knife to his throat, threatened to kill himself and made several requests for the police to shoot him. Police officers rushed to Adriana and found her unresponsive. They then negotiated with James, telling him to drop the knife, which he eventually did. He then walked towards the police and was arrested without incident. At 11.35pm, paramedics entered the scene and declared Adriana dead. James was taken to the Mooney Ponds police station and interviewed. He said he had killed somebody. He claimed to have little or no memory of the actual incident, saying, I can't really remember. It's all a bit of a blur. (sighs) The impact upon Adriana's family and friends was profound. Her mother, Gracie, described the loss of her daughter as intolerable. She wished it were all just a bad dream. Adriana's father, Giuseppe, described how soon after Adriana's death, he found himself following someone he believed was his daughter, only to find a confused stranger. He was then struck by the reality that his daughter was gone forever. He told of the feeling of emptiness in his soul and how he blamed himself for not being there to protect her. 
This isn't Giuseppe's fault. No, it's not your fault. At the time of her murder, Adriana was about to graduate with a Bachelor of Science majoring in zoology from the University of Melbourne. In his victim impact statement, Giuseppe mentioned how the university conferred his daughter's degree posthumously and presented the award to her brother Nicola. James pleaded guilty to the murder of Adriana Donato and there was plenty of horseshit mitigating circumstances that his defence were peddling to diminish his culpability and degree of responsibility. But before I go into that, let's talk about the premeditation. Let's. This brutal, senseless act of violence was committed in a chilling manner with plenty of sinister premeditation involved. This was not a spontaneous act of violence committed in the heat of the moment. For some time before he murdered her, James contemplated killing her. He commenced the planning at least three weeks early by smashing her car window and by uttering a threat to another. Over the next few weeks, he researched the law of murder and ways he might break into her home. About a week before the killing, he bought a skinning knife and told others he planned to kill Adriana with it. The day of the killing, he researched sentences for murder again. Minutes before the killing, with the knife in his possession, he lured Adriana away from a party on a pretext. Yeah, like he didn't just like have some kind of psychotic break where he rushed into a party full of people and stabbed her. He no. made sure he separated her from anyone who could protect her, got her alone, and then he did it. Yeah. You know, like that's not, I wasn't thinking. He's thinking, right? He certainly is, Tara. His defence argued that James was both immature and in the grips of a major depressive disorder of severe intensity with psychotic features. Hang on, okay, when he was actually going to a psychologist and when he was diagnosed with depression and given Prozac, which might have been a psychiatrist or Adjust, a GP, yeah. nobody said that he had any kind of psychosis back then, did they? No, they said adjustment uh, disorder. Yeah, but does it sound to you like perhaps this is just convenient for the court case I, to say this? Yeah, I'm not buying it, Tara. Yeah, that, like, I, do, I do wonder. Well, Judge Croucher agreed somewhat but stated... As unwell as he was, his behaviour was still very calculated and his culpability is still quite high. Unfortunately, in the end, the court was not satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that James intended to kill at the moment he stabbed Adriana. James was sentenced on the basis of an intention to cause really serious injury rather than an intention to kill. He told people he was going to kill her. Yeah, I'm disagreeing with this too. <sighs> Although James was never violent towards Adriana during their relationship, there were features of their time together that can only be described as controlling behaviour by James. Was this a case of, if I can't have her, nobody will? James was not only devastated by the breakup, but was also angry at Adriana as a result. It was his defence's opinion that James' ability to deal with his emotions was compromised by his immaturity, his severe depression and psychosis. Now let's hear about these mitigating factors that determine the sentencing of James. Okay. First, there is his plea of guilty. After his lawyers investigated possible defences, such as mental impairment, James pleaded guilty, which spared witnesses the ordeal of giving evidence, saved considerable scarce court police and prosecutorial resources, and showed James's willingness to facilitate the course of justice. Well, so he was probably offered a lesser sentence for doing so. Oh, yeah, I'll get to that. But according to the presiding judge, Judge Croucher, his plea of guilty was worthy of a significant discount. Oh, really? 
Secondly, the court was satisfied that James was remorseful and understood the impact his actions had on others. I'm not buying that one too. Yeah. Thirdly, absence of prior convictions or history of violence. I'll allow it. (laughs) (laughs) The court of Barney is now open. Fourthly, it was stated that James' pre-existing psychological problems combined with his cultural dislocation, his dysfunctional personality and his youth will unite to make him a particularly vulnerable prisoner. Well, I mean, maybe he should have Googled that beforehand, right? Yeah. During remand, James was housed in protection because of the nature of his crime. Judge Croucher stated that James's time in custody will be significantly more onerous than for other prisoners. Ugh, really? What, because his dad was a famous football player? Fifthly, if that is a word, James was quite young. He was 21 at the time of the offence. He was young. Well, Adriana was only 20. Yeah, it would have been nice for Adriana to reach 21. Yeah, probably would have. Judge Croucher stated, I am of the view that his youth is still a very important sentencing consideration. In those circumstances, one of the great objectives of the criminal law, namely the rehabilitation of a young offender, has a good chance of being achieved. Now, here's some interesting information for you, Tara. Okay. The average sentence in Australia for murder is from 18 and a half years to about 20 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 16 years. Okay. That's the average. Yeah. Jane Stoneham was sentenced to 19 years imprisonment with a non-parole period of 14 and a half years. Okay. So that sounds like a pretty heavy sentence, right? Yeah, not to me. In sentencing James Stoneham, the judge stated, I can say that, but for James' plea of guilty... I would have imposed a head sentence in the order of 25 years imprisonment with a non-parole period in the order of 20 years. Okay, well, now it seems like quite a discount. It does, doesn't it? Now, you think that would be the end of the story, but I have more. (sighs) It's never the end of the story for the people involved. (laughs) No, they live with that every day. Yeah, they wake up with it every morning. And they go to bed with it every night. Uh, I've also, um, in the um, Denise Huber case as well, like her dad, every time he saw a girl that looked like her. Yeah. Yeah, which reminds me of how Giuseppe, yeah. On Monday, June 3, 2014, on Fox's open mic program, Jane Stoneham's father, former AFL footballer Alan Stoneham, was interviewed about his career and that tragic night that changed his life forever. One would assume a death in the family or an horrific car accident had befallen the star footballer because there was certainly no mention of the word murder. In his interview, host Mike Sheen did not ask Alan how Adriana died or why. There was no mention of how his son used Google to search the words murder, Australian law, chloroform before enticing Adriana into his car and driving to Riverside Park. No mention in the interview that 60 women a year in Australia are killed by men with whom they've had an intimate relationship. During the interview, the killer James Stoneham was portrayed as a victim of a psychotic episode rather than a man seeking revenge against a woman who had ended a relationship. Adriana's mother, Grace, said in her victim impact statement, Women have to be respected for the choices they make in their lives and not be controlled by jealous and obsessive men. This bullshit violence of vengeful men is fucked, so don't try and tell me that they are victims. Jane Stoneham is not a victim. He didn't kill the woman he loved. He killed a woman whose mistake he believed was not to love him. 
He had pleaded guilty, said his father, in order to avoid a trial that would have hurt Adriana and his own family. Bullshit. There is so much evidence of planning that went into Adriana's murder, he just did it to reduce his sentence. Yep. Not once in this interview were the issues of jealousy and possessiveness addressed by Alan Stoneham. Instead of placing the blame squarely on his son's shoulders, Alan chose to blame his son's mental health and the mental health system for this act of violence, transforming yet another killer into a victim. And I'm sick of it. We're sick of it. The whole fucking world is sick of it. Hot damn. In a stirring victim impact statement read in court, Adriana's father... Giuseppe urged Justice Croucher to use his daughter's death to send a clear message that violence against women was unacceptable. Adriana Donato would never have gotten her ex-boyfriend's car if she had known about his plot to kill her and that he had a knife. Others knew. Why didn't anyone tell her? Yeah, it's a sickness in our whole society and if we know things like this, we need to tell people. Yeah. It would have saved her life. (sighs) (sighs) Yeah, it's um, that really that stuff really gets me worked up. You're right. There's too many women. There was three last week. Yeah, it's um, um, it's a plague on the world. Yeah, and we as people who live in it need to. Do more if we see things. Let's all look after each other. Yeah, we really have to because this has to change. It really does. Well, I guess it's time for an Aussie as. What is that again, (laughs) Tara? Do you think you can get one out for me? I can squeeze one out. Thanks. Aussie as are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. I'm guessing you'd like to hear one right now. I really need one. I do. All right, one sec. Lay it on me, Tara. Everyone has a dream, some kind of lingering ambition that ignites their soul. 38-year-old South Australian housewife Karen Davis is no different. Kaz's dream was to be immortalised online by flashing her mountainous double F-sized titties on Google Maps. All right. Oh, yeah. She Could have said... Goals. Oh, look at Google Maps a lot, and I wanted to be on there, and I thought, this is the way to do it, eh? I got to tick something off my bucket list. I met Australian football player Sam Newman, and now I'm on Google Maps. I also did it for a friend in the United Kingdom. Now he can see me all the time. When she saw the Google Street View car driving down her street one day, Kazza said she pulled up her shirt like it was spring break to reveal her knockout knockers and chased the car with the mounted camera through the streets of her neighbourhood to make sure she and her boobs got in shot. <laughs> so just picture that for a moment, if you will. Well, you've got that, you've got that photo there. Let me have a look at that. <laughs> On your computer. I've actually oh my God. changed your screensaver. Oh. <laughs> so not everyone was impressed. Superintendent Scott Denny of the South Australian State Police said in a statement, oh, the woman's actions were the same as someone flashing their genitals and the public expectation is that we take action. Recently in Port Pirie, we arrested a man for exposing himself in public. This incident is no different. 
It is not appropriate for anyone to expose themselves in public places. Our community should be able to expect a bit of decency. Oh, he's not wrong. <laughs> Cassa said she was extremely bemused when the police questioned her and took a DNA sample after the incident. Well, she's a sex offender now. Ah, oh, no, actually, I don't think she is. Oh, okay. Um, like, according to law. Anyway, yeah. this is what she said. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> There was no child harmed in the making. My children don't have to go to therapy because of it. I didn't give any old man a heart attack that I'm aware of. (laughs) I spoke to my 19-year-old son before and he thinks it's funny as. My children don't have a problem with it at all. I'm going to try and go to court with a straight face and try not to laugh. I think it's a bit hilarious because it's so low scale in the criminal world. (laughs) After the uncensored photos of Kaz's dirty pillows taken in January 2015 were posted on Google Maps several weeks ago, they became a viral hit in her hometown and around the globe. (laughs) Globe is the, the, the key phrase. Around here. the globe. Well, the globes. <laughs> Since then, Kaz's Facebook has been flooded with friend requests, but she's also received some busty backlash. Ooh, busty backlash. Mm, she said, Oh, I'm getting caught a bad mum. Feral, disgusting filth. I thought that was quite funny. All the flat titty chicks think I'm disgusting. Big boob envy is hit port peery. <laughs> <laughs> She's pretty proud of herself. I was herself. just imagining her running down the road with <laughs> yeah. her hands in the air. <laughs> Lifting up her those, top. <laughs> those pendulous titties cracking together side to side. like Newton balls. <laughs> oh, you so, paint a picture. You really paint a picture, Tara. I'm, I'm an artiste. <laughs> so the eruption of publicity has inspired Google to blur out not just Kaz's offending titty balls, but her entire body because they want to discourage copycats. Kazza says, in an effort to top the rush of the Google Maps fame, she plans to skydive topless for her 40th birthday next year. On your Kazza! I don't don't want to see that. (laughs) I've seen the photos. Um, I've seen the uncensored photos. uh, You do you, Kazza. You do you. Yeah, you do you, Worst things have happened. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, Cassie knows what do. Yeah, Cassie does. Uh, Kazza! So thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you'd like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, I'm so thirsty. I'm so thirsty. There's a PayPal donate button there too. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Sarabin. And we... And... that <laughs> Fuck, fuck, bum, anus. And we just did some bloody murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. Oh, no, and on our Facebook page. Yeah, yeah, either way. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. Join our Facebook group, Bloody Murder Podcast, if you want to. It's pretty cool. Follow us on Twitter and Snapchat and Insta. All the shit. Yep, check out our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes, and merchandise. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week, whether you like it or not. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So that um, picking up decks from school today was pretty good, wasn't it? No, it was really annoying. It he, was so bad. What I, was that one word he wouldn't stop saying? Well, I, I said a, a few days ago, I said, how was your day? And he said, yum. Yeah.
And I said, yup. yup. What's yup mean? He goes, yup. And then he just kept repeating that word over and over. He was putting it into songs that were playing. He was yeah. basically driving me crazy. I, at one point, I thought of just jumping out the car door into incoming traffic. And I'm like, oh, we haven't finished the episode. He believes he's created a new genre of music <laughs> that's called yupstep. Yeah, well, you know what he might have. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that was pretty They kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Pretty freaking amazing. Yeah, he's a nutty kid. I love him. <laughs> I do love that about him. I was kind of surprised how annoyed I was getting. He uh, just wouldn't stop saying the word yub. Up. Just yub, yub, yub up. Yub. Shut that yub of your yubby yubness. Too much <sighs> yub. Not enough yub, too much yub. Oh, no, it was definitely too just, much yub. You know what? If I never hear the word yub again, it'll be too soon. Uh, Hello, I'm Bernaldo Danger Black. And I'm Taurus Arabella. And we're underwater. I'm meek and apologetic for existing. Would you like a pig's anus on your tongue? Yum, yum, pig, pig's on Christmas pudding. pudding. <laughs> Put that pig anus on your tongue. <laughs> <laughs> pig's bum on my tongue. <laughs> bum tongue, pig's bum Christmas pudding. Where's Cambo? <laughs> Boom, fuckalunga. <laughs> Say, hey, Cambo, how you doing? Is that a forex you got there? No, fuck, it isn't. Yeah. What do you say sometimes? It's just so disrespectful. I don't say that. You do? You well, I go, that's just so disrespectful. Oh, oh, that's what I just did. I say that, do I? Yeah. When? You said it in Well, one just episode. now, obviously. Well, you said it, uh, I don't know, a couple of episodes ago. It made me laugh. <laughs> Unlike today's efforts. Well, no, no, you rarely make me laugh. I know, except I mean, when I fall over. I sometimes laugh slowly, backing away with my hands out. Going, I made you laugh earlier. <laughs> no, because we were in the car and we had to go pick up Barney's son from school and I'd eaten some salami and I got some stuck between my teeth and I couldn't get it out and I didn't have any floss or a toothpick. So I used, I tried to make some floss out of my hair and then I got a hair stuck in my tooth and it was just it was just terrible. And then you put a llama in to eat the hair and yeah, the, the llama got stuck lion. and then you have to get a lion. Dude. <sighs> and then it was all the yub step. Oh, just don't even with that. We start with the headline, alleged gang boss donkey dodges decks, <laughs> dodges dicks. <laughs> so they didn't hit him? The dicks, the flying dicks, the flying dicks were just running straight at Donkey. One of them got in my ear. Oh no, you don't want a dick in your ear. Iggy pops into it. Of course, he's had it in the ear before because he's got a lust for life. Oh, is that what that song's about? Dicks in the ear. Dicks in the ear. I did not know that. Yeah, you should try it. Gives you a lust for life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do need that right now. Yeah, no, you were feeling a bit sleepy earlier. I was feeling a bit sleepy. Come at me, Frenchies, with all your hate mail. I'll take your hate, Frenchies. All right, do some paragraphs. Cunt. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 